The following program is brought to you by Caltech. All right, good morning everyone and welcome to our fourth lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Uh, this morning we have the pleasure via telecon of having uh, Mr. Brett Drake who leads the future mission planning and analysis activities for the Exploration Missions and Systems Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Mr. Brett Drake. Good morning. Uh, hope you all can hear me uh, okay. I'm sorry I couldn't be there with you. I had other pressing issues here at the Space Center that are uh, keeping me away. Um, hope you're enjoying your time there, and I wanted to uh, just kind of walk through some of, uh, some of the architectural considerations for human exploration of near-Earth asteroids. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to give you a brief overview of uh, the framework for human exploration where we stand today, uh, get for how near-Earth objects, uh, near-Earth asteroids fit into that framework, and then I'll spend the balance of the time going through some of the considerations from an architecture perspective design these missions, some of the interrelated issues you need to consider. Um, right now, you know, there's been a lot of debate in terms of what the human, uh, future of human exploration is. Um, over the last 20 years, we've, we've been studying and, and planning for human exploration beyond low Earth orbit. Um, there's been a lot of focus on the moon, a lot of focus on, on Mars. Um, through that period, we've looked at near-Earth asteroids. And each time we go, um, through this process, um, we have fits and starts. We, we need to have a program that's sustainable um, and um, one that can, uh, for, can, can accommodate unforeseen uh, changes in the direction that may come as, as we rotate through you know, various Congresses and, and White Houses. We, we have a program that will sustain multi, multi um, aspects of those across many, many um, different uh, uh, offices. As we look at that, uh, we step back and we're, we've, we're developing a framework that, that is more, we believe, more sustainable. And it is a progressive expansion beyond low Earth orbit and includes multiple destinations. Um, missions to low Earth orbit and things we may do in low Earth orbit. Um, missions to higher Earth orbit and cis lunar space, getting out to the moon, eventually to the, to the surface of the um, And as you expand farther, missions to near-Earth asteroids and eventually um, Mars and the moons of Mars are the ultimate uh, destination in terms of our future of what we're, we're using for our strategic planning. And as we frame these, these architectures and moving forward and, and trying to understand how all these various destinations fit together, um, we need to include various uh, figures of merit, <clears throat> essentially measures of goodness of how well you can measure um, a specific approach and how well it meets stakeholders' needs. Um, we know that they have to be affordable. There's a lot of discussion about budgets going on today and, and deficits. So programs that we come up with and missions that we fly have to be affordable. Um, they have to meet just not only total costs but also yearly expenditures. So, so there's a lot of focus on how much various different approaches will cost. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it needs to be sustainable. Uh, it needs to meet the stakeholders' needs. It needs to be able to be um, stand various uh, White Houses and, and, and Congresses as we go forward. Um, make it as safe as we can. 
You know, risk is always a part of our missions. We can't not ever make it completely risk-free. Um, so what we really focus on is, is trying to make, that, make the risk as, as low as uh, reasonably acceptable, achievable. Um, schedule is also an important aspect. We, want, we don't want to pull together a program that will take forever to pull off. Um, so we need to have some interne intermediate milestones, uh, progressive expansion. And as I mentioned earlier, it needs to meet the stakeholders' needs. We need to have benefits back to, uh, to Earth here, um, here on Earth, as well as meeting some of our scientific and, and other uh, specific stakeholder needs. Um, the framework that we're following is, as I mentioned earlier, progressive expansion. If you kind of look at it this way, we're, here we are um, on the Earth to establish um, new capabilities of getting to low Earth orbit. And we call that you know, gaining the high ground. Um, the first step getting off the surface of the Earth is, is one of the hardest. You know, getting off the Earth and then getting back into the Earth's gravity well are, are very difficult. So gaining that high ground. And then as you progressively expand into the solar system, lunar um, distances, Earth asteroid distances, and all the way out to, all the way out to Mars, um, eventually leading to planetary um, exploration. And as you do that, you you develop new capabilities and you understand what are your requirements and what are your system capabilities as you move forward. So, you know, um, getting off the off the surface of the Earth now in terms of the launch. Uh, we know that getting to lunar distances, um, geosynchronous orbit, high Earth orbit missions, uh, lunar flybys, getting to the lunar surface, you need high thrust in space propulsion. You know, getting getting crew from Earth orbit to the destination and back as quickly as possible is key. And that requires a high thrust and cryogenic type propulsion capabilities. Um, as you extend your, your reach farther into the solar system, um, for instance, um, near-Earth asteroid type missions, now you're talking about capabilities where you need to support the crew for longer periods of time. Uh, these simple missions of you know three days, less than a week, uh, in in cis lunar space or Earth space, um, become now months, if not a year long. And so, having capabilities supporting the crews for long periods of time in that deep space radiation environment is is key. So, having high habitation systems for that is important. As you then start start to expand your presence to harder near Earth asteroids or all the way out to the the distance of Mars, uh, Mars's moons, Phobos and Deimos, you now need advanced propulsion in addition to having So you're folding in that capability of now um, trying to reduce the total mass by incorporation of advanced propulsion concepts. And then eventually when you get to the surface of Mars, you start folding in surface capabilities, um, landing systems and surface assets in terms of what you will explore with. You notice that um, this, this orange line in surface capabilities you know, cuts through the surface missions, lunar surface missions. And that is, that is an open debate right now um, of do we go back to the moon first or do we go to Earth asteroids? There are, there are valid strategies of both approaches. You know, the moon is just a few days away, so it's, it's, a, it's an approach and um, progressively expand the mission duration and accept risks as we go on. Uh, Near-Earth asteroid missions are longer duration, and they, they require us to accept that longer duration right at the beginning, but you don't need to develop all those landers and surface systems. Instead, you focus on deep space habitation and propulsion. So there are a lot of debates going on. We continue to, um, to formulate those capabilities. And right now, 
our strategy is to develop this capability-driven framework where we understand the progressive expansion of what we want to explore um, further and further into space. We understand what capabilities are required from the transportation and systems. And we're, in essence, agnostic in terms of which destination we go to first. Will the political and the stakeholder process determine what that will be? And so should we decide to go to the moon first? We can do that. Should we decide to go to near-Earth asteroids first? We can do that. Um, if we had enough money, we'd love to do them both at the same time. But we'll let, we'll let that determine as we go forward. So this capability-driven framework is kind of the heart of what we're trying to do and make sure that our investment today feed into what we want to do in the future. Um, now I want to spend um, the rest of the balance of the time on the existential considerations of human missions to near-Earth asteroids. Um, as we develop those architectures, as I mentioned, they, they, human missions to near-Earth asteroids get, get long. Um, they're measured in terms of months, and not just days or weeks. And so we have significant challenges of supporting humans for those long-duration missions. They're in the deep space radiation environment. Um, if we don't provide some sort of art artificial gravity, um, there will be mus muscle um, atrophy and bone decalcification. So, uh, so countermeasuring those effects of, of zero gravity is important. Um, so that's important of how do we support the crews for these long-duration missions in deep space. Uh, one aspect of that is also how short if we can reduce the trip time, then the crew is not exposed to that deep space environment as long. So understanding that interrelationship between the mission design, the technologies required, and this human support system is what we spend a lot of our time on. Um, as I mentioned, reducing trip time is one way of, of meeting that challenges of, of supporting humans in deep space. Um, so we look at advanced propulsion concepts and, and how those then feed into um, using those technologies and uh, looking at the mission design as opportunities to reduce that trip time. But generally, when you look at advanced propulsion technologies, um, they take advanced funding. Um, they take time to develop those technologies, do flight demonstrations to prove those technologies before you're ready to actually commit a crew to multi-months um, with that technology. And that means your schedule slips out to the right. So from a sustainable perspective, Delaying the actual mission, waiting for those advanced propulsion concepts um, is not really desirable. So we also look for opportunities. Are there ways in which we can conduct some early missions? Are there some um, easy to reach near-Earth asteroids, as an example? Um, so we can accomplish some of those missions, take those baby steps, as we're at the same time developing the more advanced propulsion concepts uh, to reach those harder near-Earth asteroids. And in general, for those, for missions to near-Earth objects, um, the, the more distant ones as well as uh, the moons of, of Mars and Mars surface, we need those advanced propulsion concepts. So we need to be on that path to develop those technologies anyhow. And near-Earth objects can fit into that path as well. Um, as we look at then those interrelated aspects of supporting the humans for, for the mission duration, incorporating those advanced technologies, we need to understand then how that feeds back into the overall architecture. Um, what objects are there? Um, how often do they appear? Um, when can we go to them? Um, what, does the, what does the departure windows look like? Is it an instantaneous departure window, and if you miss it, then you've, you've completely lost the object? 
or is it a wide departure when uh, you have a lot of flexibility in, in terms of your timing? And overall, all of that feeds into the overall complexity of the mission and how many launches are required to conduct it. And from previous studies, most of our cost is tied up in transportation. Transportation, the launch, um, the actual transportation itself and getting the crews out and back comprises most of the mission architecture. We spend a lot of time really trying to reduce the total mission mass um, of the architecture because that's the first, first order approximate cost of the architecture. So there's two different, you know, two different logical paths of reducing that mission mass. Uh, one is to fly easy, shorter missions, uh, ones that don't require a lot of energy to get to and back. Um, and if you can't find those, then you want to incorporate as much advanced technology as you can to, to help reduce your mission mass. So it's a constant balance of trying to trade cost, performance, risk um, within the overall architecture. Um, Paul Abel, I'm sure, gave you a good discussion about the, the physical characteristics and what we know about the asteroids. Um, I'll bring, bring only these two charts just to try to show from a, from a human exploration perspective there are a couple of key considerations we need to include into that, which is not only where the objects are and getting to them, getting back, but what do we do when we're actually there? How do we explore the objects? Um, we know there's this correlation, strong correlation between the size of the object and the rate in which it may be spinning, which is important to us from a human exploration perspective because our whole objective is to you know, to reach out and touch the, ex the, the targets to explore them physically. Uh, we don't want to just fly by and take pictures. And that means we need to interact with the object. So we need to be able to match its spin rate if it is spinning. Um, we know that larger, larger asteroids are, are probably more interesting for, to us from a scientific perspective, more diversity. Um, so we're, the whole objective is really trying to find that, that right well, the, the Goldilocks type of, of an approach where we find that the large asteroid um, that can also be a, a slow spinner and they can also, they will also provide us a lot of scientific return. Um, our size estimates, I'm sure Paul talked to you about, based on our estimate of the, of the visual brightness, um, the HMAG, if you will, the absolute magnitude of the visual brightness. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that, so we don't know exactly how large these objects are. Um, we generally, based on, on the albedo we see, we estimate the size of the objects. And in general, using about a, an object of about 30 meters or, or larger is a good rule of thumb in terms of, a, of an object. You'll see some of the objects are, are much smaller than that. And um, being able to explore it if it's a fast spinner and being able to do that will be, will be a challenge. So there's, there's a lot of forward work uh, with respect to that. But interacting with the object and having the tools and capabilities to do that exploration are key. Walk through, let me walk through kind of a, a typical mission to try to under, give you a, a feel for um, how we develop these architectures. Um, I know John Baker talked to you yesterday afternoon about some of the building blocks of what we use. Um, but basically, you know, you've got launch vehicles. Um, we need to deploy these mission elements. Uh, generally, the amount of mass you need to launch in, into space for these missions is on the order of about half of the mass of the International Space Station. And if we're lucky, we can find a good object and inc incorporate the right technologies, we can get it less than that. But it's generally on the order of about 150 to 200 metric tons. So that requires, um, in order to reduce the number of launches, a heavy lift launch vehicle. And that'll take several months to launch those in orbit. 
We also want to minimize the complexity of the operations. We don't want to necessarily have crew there uh, assembling the vehicles. So we try to minimize the amount of complexity of the vehicles and, and try to design the systems where a simple rendezvous and docking is all many months to pre-deploy all the vehicle elements and get them ready. Um, once we know that the vehicles are ready um, and then the departure opportunity is opening up, uh, we transport the crew up there to the, to the vehicle. That'll take you know a few days, a day or so to get the crew up there, get them to the vehicle, check it out. Once everything's ready, green lights are go to go conduct the exploration from Earth orbit, and that generally requires a, a propulsive maneuver to, to leave Earth orbit, perhaps the Earth swing by, um, the gravity boost. But that, that's a few hours to do that propulsive maneuver to get you on your way to, to the object. And then you have generally months of transit time getting out to the target. So you want to provide, you need to provide the human health and performance, the habitability. You need to uh, make sure that you have meaningful work for the crew to do during those several months of isolation as they transit out to the, out, out to the nearest asteroid. Once they get there, um, because of the way the trajectories line up, you generally have um, just days, if not weeks, of time to explore the target. So you don't have a whole lot of time. Um, so the activities and all the training aspects of the crew are going to be fairly intense when they, once they get to the, to the asteroid to conduct your exploration, get all those scientific investigations done as quickly as possible because you have a limited amount of time before you need to depart to come back home. Again, the departure from the asteroid will be a few hours, separated by several months of transit back to Earth. Again, keeping the crew health and healthy and, and alive is important there. Ending up with direct entry back at the end of the mission. And so that's kind of the general framework of how you break up the mission into, a, into its major mission segments. Um, within the, these are the build, some of the building blocks. I don't know if this is exactly the same ones that, that John Baker um, showed you yesterday, but the general pieces are we need, from a crew support perspective, um, a way to get the crew up to back at the end of the mission, and the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle serves those functions very well. Um, it serves as the vehicle that the crew would ride during Earth ascent and out to the to the uh, vehicle stack, and at the end of the mission, direct entry at the end of the mission, much like we did with Apollo missions. Support the crew for these long duration transits, and at I'm at the target at the at the nearest asteroid, we generally have to incorporate the deep space habitat, something like that. Um, living the, the living volume and living capabilities in Orion are not sufficient to support the crew for many months. So you need to augment that volume, provide the exercise equipment and things like that um, via deep space habitat. Once you're there at the target, you need capabilities to explore. So you need EVA systems, um, other perhaps multi-purpose exploration vehicles that can explore the target, interact with it, uh, perform those scientific investigations. In the middle there, you see the space launch system. Um, that's you know heavy lift launch vehicle to get the, the get the pieces up into Earth orbit. And generally on the order of about 100 metric tons or more is what we, what we look at in order to reduce the number of launches. And then across the bottom there you see transportation options. There are many different options we continue to look at. Um, cryogenic, the chemical propulsion is, is much like we have at the space station, space station or space shuttle missions or the upper stage and a lot of the launch vehicles, you know, hydrogen, oxygen type systems to give us a high, uh, high thrust maneuvers 
um, at as good of a specific impulse, specific impulse as a measure of the efficiency of the system. Um, there are other advanced propulsion concepts like nuclear thermal propulsion. Um, that technology was actually demonstrated in the Herbert program in the early, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And that gives you both high performance in terms of high thrust, uh, but it's also more efficient than the, than the oxygen and hydrogen systems. Um, has a lot more energy in the system, and so, so it can help reduce the total mission mass. And then there are other concepts like solar electropropulsion, which are, which are low thrust systems. They require, um, they, since they're low thrust, they require more thrusting time. Um, and they're really good for pre-placing -place, pre cargo um, or some of the initial departure maneuvers. Um, but you need, still need the high thrust uh, chemical systems to get the crew up to high orbit once, they, uh, once, once you put the crew on. So we're still looking at, at various different um, advanced propulsion concepts as ways to help reduce the total mission mass. So now looking at some of the architectures and how you together. Um, the methodology we follow, um, I know Damon Lando is going to talk to you uh, later this morning about the, uh, the orbit, uh, the trajectory optimization. And generally what we do, the, the mission, the trajectories are kind of the pointy end of the spear. Um, Developing those trajectories and optimum trajectories is really key because that really drives the total mission mass. So generally what we do is we, we go out to the um, trajectory folks, SNAP and trajectory folks, and they, they can produce to, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, if not millions of trajectories to the various different targets. When we take those trajectories, we apply an operational concept, and I'll describe some of those in a minute. Um, we use those mission payloads, as I just described earlier, those building blocks of how perform the high thrust maneuvers or support the crew. And through a series of, of modeling approaches, model the total mass of the system. So we can understand how well each one of those trajectories, how fast we fly, how long we're at the target, what it means in a physical construct in terms of total mission mass. And that's the best way of, of measuring the goodness of an architecture is how much total mission mass it has, which required, which then results in the total number of launches, and it's a first-order approximation of the total cost of the architecture. So when you start breaking down some of the uh, some of those example transportation options, here's an example of a of an all all um, chemical propulsive concept, where you use several heavy lift launch vehicles to launch vehicle stages into Earth orbit, rendezvous and dock those together, including a habitat. Um, right before you're ready to depart Earth orbit, you send the crew up in a Ryan vehicle. And you use these chemical stages, um, perhaps a couple of them to leave Earth orbit, transit out to the asteroid, use another one to, to stop the asteroid, or the asteroid for a few weeks. Um, for instance, this um, space exploration vehicle interact with the asteroid. Use another chemical burn to send the vehicle stack on its way back and then direct entry at the end of the mission in the Orion entry vehicle. So all of these stages are expended as you march through the architecture. Um, capturing these systems back into Earth orbit requires another propulsive maneuver. Um, that's a high entry speed condition, and it, it requires a lot of propellant, which you have to take all the way back round trip through the mission. So capturing these for reuse at the end of the mission becomes really um, very challenging as we do this. Next option is another high, high thrust uh, propulsion concept, 
using the nuclear thermal propulsion. It's very similar to the one I just outlined in the chemical, um, but instead you're using the more, the more efficient concepts of the nuclear thermal stage. In this concept, um, again, multiple launches to get the vehicle elements up, but there is a core nuclear stage that you take round trip through the mission. And if you need to stage things from a mission mass perspective, throw off, once you've used up this propellant and these tanks, you can then drop those drop tanks to help in, improve your overall efficiency of the system. You don't drop the entire stage, you instead drop the tanks and take the core NTR system all the way through. It has um, higher, higher specific impulse, higher efficiency of the system, and so therefore it's totally But again, major maneuvers, you know, major maneuver at Earth to depart, a maneuver to slow down and stop in the, at the asteroid, and another major maneuver at, um, to leave the asteroid to come home. And all of these, I didn't mention that in the chemical architecture, depending on your entry speed coming back to Earth, you may need to slow down a little bit to stay within the limits of the Orion entry vehicle. And just like the chemical architecture, um, usually these elements are expended again because of the total mission mass. And then here's the solar electric one of the many solar electric propulsion concepts um, that we're showing. Um, for this, solar electric propulsion, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a low thrust architecture. So generally, you, you launch the cargo vehicle elements, the solar electric vehicle, the habitat, the space exploration vehicle, and those spend several months or more spiraling up to a higher staging orbit. So you're pre-placing that cargo up into this higher orbit. Once you got that vehicle there, you're satisfied with the system, then you send the crew as quickly as you can on this using a, a high thrust chemical system, get up there as quickly as possible, check out the vehicle, and then they are use this vehicle stack to go out and explore the explore the target. Um, either use the solar electric propulsion stage itself to spiral itself out and, and continue thrusting on the way out to the object, or sometimes we add an, another small chemical stage here to start the boost. But this overall system, again, since it's a, um, it's a much more efficient, high, um, uh, low thrust, but high specific impulse system, um, it re really reduces the amount of propellant required. Um, you need larger solar arrays to provide the, the power of the system, so you're adding more mass there, but that you're adding a lot less mass in terms of propellant. And again, systems are expended at the end as you come back for direct entry into Earth. One of the one of the key aspects of these missions is as you um, develop the develop the mission concept, you look at what do the um, what does the trip time versus the amount of energy required that what we measure in terms of uh, total delta v. These are these are measures of constant um, total delta v. Delta v is the change in velocity, total change in velocity required to leave Earth, stop at the asteroid, and then leave the asteroid. Contours of, of total um, total delta v change, and you can see these regions down here um, for these opportunities down in this um, this period. This is for the asteroid 2000 SG344, which is one of the one of the best ones we've found found so far. You see, you can get some trip times down in the 90 days, 180 180 day trip time. But you also notice that the the um, the delta v contours. Are in the red. They're you know eight, seven, six total kilometers per second of total delta v. So you're getting short trip times, but it's requiring a lot of delta v. Conversely, up here at the top, 
that's for longer mission durations, you get lower delta V. And lower delta V means mass. So trying to understand what's this relationship time, delta V, and mission mass is important. Um, and each one of those architectures all will have different mission mass. So translating those delta quite a challenge that we work through daily. So as you go through this, then there are some, keating, some competing considerations that you need to weigh against each other. Uh, we want to make the mission duration as short as possible, but as I just showed there, um, on a delta V, emission mass, a relationship between mission mass and mission duration is important. Understanding are there opportunities um, mission date, are there, are there objects with delta V in the time that you're really interested uh, when your technologies will be ready is important. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the size of the target, are there, are there large targets at the time that you're interested in with delta V? And then mission technology, do, do, do you dial in? Um, will those technologies be available at that date in which you really want to fly? So you've got all those considerations that you need to, uh, to dial in and really influence each other. We saw this delta V, delta v contour. Um, this is now an example of how we uh, translate that delta V into total mission mass. What we've done is we've taken a habitat design, we've taken the delta Vs required, you know, the change in velocity required to conduct the mission, modeled the stage sizes required to do those, and then you can plot, these are, con these are contours of constant mission mass. So you can see that the mission mass, as you get shorter mission durations, the mission mass is getting into you know, 300 tons, for instance, um, as an example here. Whereas if you fly a mission that's 360 days, you can see, well, there's some that are 160 to 176 tons. So almost half the mission mass, but you're having to fly a longer mission. So what is, the, what is the relative risk? What is the relative benefit of those two approaches? And then you can do start things like mapping the regions. These, this, for instance, is a region where three launches or less can be, you, conduct them, you can conduct the mission for three launches or less. And once you understand this, then you can really start to understand, all right, well, if I had, for instance, a 360-day capa capability of supporting the crew for 360 days, I can see where my beginning launch window would be and when it would close, and you can start to map this into the time sequence in which you want to conduct the mission. Are the targets available within those constraints? Wanted to fly a shorter mission, mission for instance, 180 days, um, you'll see that the windows will be then um, the windows would be shorter. You see that the mission duration is shorter. Mass is, is um, you're still constraining that to the, to the three launch scenario, um, but your your launch windows are becoming shorter now as you're, you're flying faster trajectories, and so therefore your mission windows then decrease in size. So that's another consideration you have to consider uh, as you move forward. Um, we like to show again this is for that 2000 SG344. That's a really a really nice target. Um, notice on here this is atypical. This is not. Uh, typical, but it's atypical. Most of them are not that, um, don't have that broad and deep of, of, of windows. Um, and you can see here, this is an example of typical propulsion, um, mass contours look like, 
and what the nuclear thermal propulsion mass contours look like. And you can see over here, as you dial in more advanced propulsion concepts, you get a lot less red, meaning uh, lower mass here. So this nuclear thermal propulsion concept not only can widen the window a little bit, but it reduces the total mission mass, thus reducing fewer, uh, requiring fewer launches. So it gives you um, less sensitivity and total uh, mass that is lower. But as I mentioned earlier, this is not a typical window. Most of the windows look like this. They're much more sharp. Those are much more uh, narrow um, in terms of when you have the available part. You can see each one of these um, ticks here is a one-month window. So you can see that you only got a few weeks uh, to leave Earth's orbit occur for this specific uh, specific target. So the timing of the windows and the length of the windows is important as you move forward. Here's, as you map, um, an example is as you map that time sequence. This is an example for chemical, chemical architecture for the time period between 2025 and 2035, which are you know, periods of interest for us, where we look at the size of asteroids of 30 meters or greater, three launches with a 160-day trip time. You win the windows for each one of these opens and closes. And you can see a couple of things from here. You got this one broad one, SG344, which is nice. Um, but then you just have a scattering of targets throughout. There are, you know, some of them are, are really fairly short windows, eight-day windows, for instance. Or you look out in this time frame, in the post-30 time frame, you're starting to pick up more targets um, with fairly reasonable launch windows. So understanding when we want to fly these missions and what targets are available to us with a given architecture. Um, and it's always a challenge to try to find them find a, a good match for all those all those aspects. Um, so here's, um, I know one of the key challenges as I mentioned earlier was how, how, um, how do you, how can you shorten the trip time? And um, this is a plot that shows you as you shorten the trip time, how many targets are available um, given the 2035 to 2020, uh, 2025 time frame, greater than 30 meters. For each one of these major propulsion concepts, how many targets are available for various mission durations? So you can see a couple of things here that as you add more launches, two chemical launches, three, oops, click there, two chemical launches, three, um, four, and five launches. As you add more launches in, you're adding more mass, but you're able to then perform more delta V in essence, which means you can pick up more targets. So adding more launches is good in terms of targets, but more launches also means more cost. So that's the cost-benefit ratio there. You can also see that as you increase the mission duration, you pick up more targets. Fly real short missions, um, you only have a handful of targets, but as you increase it, you can pick up more targets. But you also notice that going from 360 to 450 days, you really don't pick up that many targets. So there's not much benefit here in flying longer missions than one year long. You look at advanced nuclear thermal propulsion, this is two or three launches, and you can see for three launches of an NTR system, you can still pick up more targets than a um, five-launch chemical architecture. Now, it will cost more to develop in the nuclear thermal propulsion concept, uh, but we may need it for Mars anyhow. 
and conversely, the solar electric here, um, about the same number of targets, um, the hundred, you know, hundred or so at the 360 to 450 day range. So this gives you a good feel for that interrelationship: total number of launches, the propulsion technology, and the mission duration that you're willing to fly. So some some key observations we find through this kind of process um, that. We really want to have a robust exploration strategy. So finding that, that which targets within the propulsion technology we're willing to dial in, uh, which targets are available. And if you can't, for instance, one of the things that we really want to understand is, for instance, if you target a specific uh, target, for instance, this 2009-HC, if you're not able to, to um, conduct the mission, you can't get the launches off or the technology is not quite ready. Um, can you then target for another target? Would it be possible to use those same systems to fly to another asteroid? So understanding the relationship between when these targets open up within an architecture is important. So having sufficiently long windows um, is important. Backup targets to fly to is important. And we see that there's a strong correlation. The longer mission you fly, the more targets you can, you can fly to, the more that are available. Propulsion um, system also the more propulsion system, the more launches you have, also increases the number of targets. Um, we know that going out to Mars was going to require advanced propulsion concept. So as we as we march towards going to Mars and dialing those capabilities of long duration habitation, advanced propulsion, we will be able to pick up more targets, which is good. As we march to Mars, uh, we will be able to fly to more and more near-Earth asteroids should we want to do that. Um, we do see, you saw on that bar chart, that last bar chart I showed, this one right here, there are a few targets that you can fly for short missions. Um, so they do exist, um, but they do tend to require more capability, you know, more delta V, uh, more advanced technology. There aren't, aren't really very many that uh, have real low delta V and short mission durations. It's, it's difficult to find them. And above all, um, really need to understand more uh, about the targets, where they are in terms of their orbit uncertainty, uh, the physical characteristics of the target, their size, their spin rate, their composition. Um, all of those types of aspects are really important from a human exploration perspective um, so that we know how to interact with the object and actually explore it more effectively. Instant measurements may even be required. And that was the end of my uh, prepared remarks. I would be willing to take any questions if you have them.